What's up, guys? This is Shiragam, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 48 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, you get to hear from Kobe, better known as Full Flavor Extracts. I've personally been patiently waiting for this one, and I'm stoked to share his story, starting in Mississippi and developing in California over the last two decades. He talked to us about how he jumped in the game, a bit about the sour craze, how he feels social media helped birth the current hash scene, and much more, so definitely stay tuned for it. Shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up Full Flavor and all our guests this year with my favorite carb caps. You can grab them at ZachBrownGlass.com. That's Z-A-C-H BrownGlass.com. As always, a huge shout out to the lifeline of the podcast, all the folks who make up our community on Patreon. Without their support, we wouldn't be able to keep bringing you episodes. So a massive thank you to each of them. If you're ever in a spot where you can or like to support the podcast, you can find us at patreon.com backslash the Hashishin. That's the Hashish I-N-N. You can find the link through our Instagram bio at the Hashishin or on our website, thehashishin.com. Shout out to another big reason that we can keep the podcast rolling, our awesome sponsors, including our friends and partners at Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. If you wash hash or you press rosin, grab everything you need from full mesh wash bags to custom sized rosin bags. Rosin Evolution has got you covered with unmatched products and customer service. Rosin Evolution is your one-stop shop for anything rosin and to save an additional 5% on their already fair prices while supporting the podcast, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710. Again, THI710 altogether saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. Shout out to our newest sponsors, a legendary functional glass establishment, Toro Glass, who you can visit at toroglassgallery.com where JP and the team keep killing it after over 20 years of providing consistency that is driven by a passion in developing the most optimum cannabis resin experience for us all. They keep pushing the limits, including their newest tweak to their legendary slurper, the Judge's Terp Taster Slurper, which they have graciously hooked me up with to judge masters of rosin with, allowing me to run through a ton of samples, scaling down the dabs, but not compromising the taste or effect. So I'm stoked to put it through the gauntlet and rep Toro out in Barcelona. And no matter where you are in the world, if you're looking for ports or high-end glass art that focuses on high-end function and design, visit Toro at toroglassgallery.com or on their Instagram at toro underscore glass. Shout out to our homies and another new sponsor, Hashhead Outfitters, who you can follow on Instagram at Hashhead Outfitters or on their website, hashheadoutfitters.com, where you'll find small batch luxury loungewear for hash smokers. They're made of incredibly comfortable yet responsibly sourced 100% cotton. They currently have a full line of gear from their debut hasher design, while recently adding some really beautiful colorways, including a sick turquoise to their sweatpants and hoodies, which I am stoked to rock in Barcelona. They also recently dropped a stylish corduroy hat. So if you or someone you know loves hash, and loves being comfortable, then head over to Instagram at Hashhead Outfitters and soon in select shops around the country and grab the gear that caters to hash lovers' lifestyles, 
and keeps you extra cozy with those dabs at hashheadoutfitters.com. Again, a shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests with a cap this year. They're my favorite caps. You can visit him at zachbrownglass.com. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Today, I am honestly honored to be here with someone who is real hash OG Kobe of Full Flavor Extracts. You can follow him on Instagram at Full Flavor. That's F-L-A-V-A Extracts. Welcome, man. How are you? Good, man. Thank you for having me. Dude, I feel like this kind of has been a long time coming. It has. It has, man. And, um, you know, you told me a while back that interviews aren't your thing. And so I I really appreciate you, you know, putting that trust in me to to do this. No problem. No problem. Thanks for having me. Of course, man. So we're coming fresh off the ego clash. Yeah. (laughs) How are you feeling? A little bit dabbed hungover, but we're good. (sighs) Yeah. Any interesting flavors? Man, I feel like it was by far the best that everyone's brought collectively. So many good ones, you know? It was hard to judge. Lots of beautiful air-dried entries. Just tell a lot of love put in to the entries all around. Yeah. You've been present at all the Eagle classes so far? Yeah, I think all of them. I might have missed one the first year, maybe, but I think all of them. I think I've been there since the beginning. Yeah. So speaking on what you just said, have you seen the level of quality continue to rise throughout the years? There's always been really good hash there since the beginning. I think collectively the quality has risen. The top entries, I think, have been pretty amazing for all the years. Yeah, I think each year it gets a little bit better. No, that's cool. and. Funny enough, a, a banana turp won last night's hash category, and I know you and I uh, have talked about the banana OG a good amount. So, is it kind of, I don't know, almost ironic to you that banana turps won last night? It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. Banana is um, one of my favorites, you know. Banana OG has always been one of my favorites. I mean, one of the first real good yielding hash plants. My good friend resin extracts he i think i think it was 2011 or 12 brought by um it was actually a dry freshly dried pound of banana og and since then uh, you know it was one of my favorites i mean yeah and also crosses from it too you know but yeah it's not surprising at all that you know banana tarps are still winning have you seen them kind of come and go a little bit were they more popular and they've maybe become less popular i think a lot of things a lot of that happens with a lot of a lot of stuff as they get really popular a lot of people try to acquire them and then um the masses get over smoking it and then everyone stops growing it (laughs) and making it and then all of a sudden it's not around anymore and then it starts being sought after again. I've seen that happen a little bit over the years with different things. You brought up the sour D just a little earlier. Yeah. As yeah, an yeah. example. Yeah, in flour as well, right? Flour, hash. Yeah. But interestingly enough, on the sour D note, you brought up the fact that there are people who currently run it. And if you've got 
a rep for running it, the value kind of creates itself. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think that's true. And, you know, Sauer is one of those ones that the examples range from being, you know, good to exceptional, depending on um, factors, you know, where they were, who they were grown by, where they were grown. I've had some amazing sour hash over the years. Yeah, you were telling me on that note something interesting or that I found interesting, which is that you've seen expressions, for example, of the same even cut from the same mom mm -hmm. express themselves in so many different forms. Not to say that the sours, that's what you were saying, but. Right, no, uh, yeah. Even on the same farm, season to season, you know, from spring to fall and summer, drastic changes in yields and terpene profiles, for sure. I mean, I would say that if you smoke it a lot, you, you're familiar with, you would still know that it was the same, but definitely significant nuances. And also quality too, like just the quality of the, the hash that comes off of it, like some, you know, better yields and just nicer looking hash than other, say like a summertime run that's been exposed to possibly more heat. Some hold up better across the board, you know, we see less change, but some we stopped running in the summer, right? Just doesn't do that great. It needs that fluctuation and that and probably some of those cool nights so then do you feel stressors is part what makes resin better let's say i think so i think too that it can i think there's a like anything there's obviously a point where stress would work against you right. i think when you've got a really good healthy soil and you know, overall, the plant health is good. And say you have slight stressors coming in, I think that could cause something that makes the, the resin express itself better. Right. You hear just too many farmers and hash makers talking about it. Like you hear a lot of, a lot of that. Yeah, like this year in particular, I mean, the general consensus, I feel like from what I've heard is like it's been a good year. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are saying that. A lot of people are saying that, and uh, I like that. It just keeps it fun, keeps it interesting. Yeah, and I mean, with the outdoor element, whether it is hoop house or not, it's similar to any other agricultural thing, I feel like, right? Like, especially like a wine or something, if you want to compare it to that. Yeah. There's going to be better seasons than others. I think so. I think so, and probably unique fluctuations that's hard to even put a exact finger on, you know. I know that elevation seems to make, you know, these foothills right around this area and towards the coast seem to just have a nice climate for resin. I mean, some of the coastal resins are just insane. I'd say maybe some of the, yeah, arguably some of the better resins there are. And the coast was never known to be a great place to grow for big flowers or for flower production, so to speak. Yeah, elevation and just all the little micro pockets and climates, man. I think it's something special to this region, obviously. So let's take the coastal setting, for example. You would need genetics that are suited to still be able to grow 
in that area or they would thrive in that area. Yeah, that's for sure. Because obviously, and I think a lot, you're going to be dealing with moisture and lower temperatures could create, you know, issues. But there's plenty of stuff that thrive just fine in that type of climate as well. And then you see like a lot of people, you know, breed their own stuff and climatize it to their area. But um, I think that with good, healthy soil and good farming practices that you can mitigate most of those issues. So you brought up being able to acclimate a plant. Have you seen genetics be able to, over time, kind of adapt themselves more to the environment? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I think the farmer can look at the genetics and possibly apply things that would make them happier, so to speak. Some genetics I know like to be in the shade a little more, some like a little more sun, probably noticing those differences versus like, that's a good question. You know, I don't know if you can possibly, if a clone, if you brought in a clone to a farm, if it would somewhat adapt over time. It's a good question. I don't know, but I know that the farmer, the symbiotic relationship between the two definitely could happen. So you told me one of the things that has drawn you to hash is that it's simple, but you said that it also can be complex. What do you mean by that? Well, the idea behind it's super simple because you're just putting weed into ice and water and letting the trikes fall down, you know? <laughs> right. Like, that's it. But then when you start talking about breeding for hash, you know, adding in all the the cold rooms and the modern equipment techniques and all these things, you know, wash times and pulling for melt or pulling for maximum yields for rosin and all these different things, right? Then it becomes more, a little more complex. And I feel like that's probably like most things are like that. I mean, food, you can cook a cheeseburger, you could, you know, cook some, you know, five-star Michelin chef. It's like the same thing. So hash, though, you believe is always going to be one of those things that is like an upper echelon thing. It's kind of one of the things that we talked about in the sense of it being like the prime example of, of quality. I think so. I mean, I don't, I mean, the thing about hash is you can't hide anything with good hash. There's just, you know, it is either what it's supposed to be or it isn't. And, you know, rosin's like that too for a lot of the ways. I mean, you can't, you know, but there is for like an uneducated person, for instance, you could hide a lot of things from them in raw, like an oil form versus a raw trike, you know? So I guess in that sense, it is a pinnacle, but also at the same time, I see why certain people prefer the oil too, you know? I mean, they both have things that I like a lot about each one, but I've always loved the fact that really good hash, it just shows itself. So let's talk about the trade you made back in around 2004, 2005 which I feel kind of was part of the things that led you this way. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
I remember just always being fascinated with the concentrates. And this was like right at the time when High Times magazine was putting out like they're putting out articles on how to like make small batches of open blast BHF. Right. You know, little copper tubes and whatnot. And I remember I did a batch of that and had a scare. Super small, like an ounce, like just all flour, you know, just for the head, just fucking. And uh, had a little scare first time fooling with it and ended up my buddy that lived on the central coast there. He, he was talking to me about these bubble bags and he was like, man, I've used them. I think you would like them a lot more than me. He was like, you should try these out. He knew he liked my weed a lot. And he was like, I bet you made some good hash with these. So I traded them out, five gallon set. Yeah, I just loved hash, making hash ever since on some form or some level. We were making pretty good hash way back then though, you know, we just used the trim and littles and we still knew just to do it fresh as possible. We weren't freezing it, but we'd put it out on a little tarp and fluff it for a couple of days. And as soon as it was good enough to go, we'd, we'd do it. We'd get some super greasy hash, but we didn't know how to dry it right at all. <laughs> I mean, we got it dry enough to smoke, but I mean, looking back on it, that was the big missing component. But uh, yeah, five gallon bubble bags, first set of bags. Yeah, so it's interesting that you bring up the point about the relatively pretty fresh washing. Yeah. Because you told me like you, that almost gave you like a certain understanding that there was a certain extra almost like meltiness that you could achieve from washing the material closer to being quote unquote live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was just, I guess just by nature, I mean, and then of course, if we didn't even realize it at first, then we washed some stuff that was more dry and kind of brittle and then found out real quick that it was that. I can't remember exactly how it worked out, but it was, you know, uh, we figured it out pretty quick. That that a little trial and error. Right. Yeah, a little trial and error. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like a lot of hash making was that for you? Back then it was, but at the same time, I mean, there was some information like online, you know, Bubble Man had some stuff out back then. It was pretty rudimentary. I mean, you know, I think he would even say that himself. I mean, compared to today's standards, but people were still producing some pretty good hash all the way back then, though, you know? It comes down to the grow, I guess, right? Yeah, and, and, but I guess about what you were saying, there was some information, enough to where it was, there was no microplane information yet. It was straining, you know, mostly just pushing it through a strainer. You knew to get it cold. You knew to wick your moisture out as good as you could onto the, and there was a certain texture that you were trying to achieve or it was going to go to shit. You know, that was about the most we knew. We didn't know nothing about cold rooms. You knew you didn't want to do it in a lot of heat because it just obviously didn't work. (laughs) But, you know, a lot of it was just done in your kitchen back in the day, you know? (laughs) And for a long time, that was just like head smoke for you, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was always had friends that would either trade or buy some from me, even all the way back then. But it was like, was nothing big. 
And at that time, obviously, you were using it as like a supplementary thing, right? To a joint or bowl or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put put it on. We were smoking. You know what's funny is we would do the, the kit. They called them candy canes. And you'd wrap them around the outside of the joint, bag, which was a complete mess half the time. I don't know <laughs> why people did it like that, but we did. My favorite way to smoke back then was out of like just a little mini bong and a screen or a little, just a little bit of herb and a little patty on top, little rippers. Could judge the melt decently like that too. Not ideally, but you could tell if it left a nice chunk of char on top or if it melted nice, you know? Right. Yeah. As diving developed, how did you start kind of informing yourself more as to like that melt quality? Did you start diving? Did you start using more screens? Man, I was trying to think of like there was almost like a little in between there when there was there was like the electronic titanium nails and people were putting the little screens on top of those because it didn't taste that good right onto the titanium, you know. Uh, so that was kind of like a little in between stage. I remember that was kind of some cool times there. And then not too far after that, people started figuring out quartz and whatnot, but. Yeah, yeah. There was, I mean, and then there was, of course, everyone hot knived. That was like the original dab, right? Hash it, you know, hot knives. Yeah, man. I remember I tripped out the first time I saw a dab. I was like, "This is, this is amazing." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Do you remember your first dab? I, I don't think I do, to be honest. I don't think I do remember my first dab. I remember, I think I remember like just seeing the nail and the rig for the first time more than anything. Yeah. No, that's cool. My memory is not great though. You know, years, I try try my best and, uh, you know, the years sometimes trick me a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I feel you on that, man. Memory is not my best asset either. So switching gears a little bit, man, you grew up in Mississippi. I did. I grew up in South Mississippi, which was crazy, crazy place to grow up, but also a cool spot to grow up as well. Taught me a lot about life down there. But what were some of the cool things? Well, I was fortunate enough to have made a lot of good friends that I still know to this day. that are great people. Family is super tight down that way. And, um, I think uh, I'll have great parents, and I think uh, those attributes has helped me out just moving away and doing what I do in life. I'd say those are the most, the biggest parts that I like from down there, yeah. And your interest in cannabis was early, though? First time I smoked, I do remember that. I was 15, I think it was the summer, right before 10th grade. I smoked just some basic old Mexican uh, with two buddies at a dead end road and <laughs> didn't really get that high the first time. And then we woke up the next morning and smoked a dent again and I got lit and I loved it. Just we laughed nonstop. And for literally from that point on, I mean, I'm not saying I was smoking every day or anything, but it was just always a, some, it was looking for the good herb in some form or fashion, you know? Right. Yeah. 
And your brother was into it too, right? Yeah. My, my middle brother, Daniel, he was 16 months younger than me, and we both shared like that same passion for sure. Yeah. Do you think that helped kind of foster that passion between both of you? Yeah, I mean, he, he, he was crazy, like in the sense of like, he, he wasn't scared of much. And so he definitely was like the energy behind popping our first seeds, you know. First time we found some good seedless, good kind bud, <laughs> we popped those bag seeds. And, uh, and uh, yeah, he, he definitely was the energy behind that. Yeah. Was that good weed local? No. So you couldn't find good weed, I don't think, in Mississippi back in the 90s. There was, don't, you could, and it was rare, but it was brought. And even that was like, you weren't just going to go get it. You know what I mean? There was no just going and getting it. In high school, a lot of what we went and would find locally was just brickweed, you know. And then I went to my first concert when I was 15 and we started scoring some good weed. That's what kind of would be. We could go to New Orleans, you know, or up to Memphis and score some herbs like that, you know. But uh, no, nah, man, it was tough. It was rough. Yeah, it was rough. So what came with those first seeds that you guys popped? Well, there was a really good blueberry bag seed that we popped that first year. And there was also this herb that supposedly was grown in Kentucky. And I would believe it just by how we would get it. But uh, <laughs> it, it was... Uh, some really good, just like, I don't know what it was, just like some good skunky, good old herb. Uh, and we grew some of those for the first ones and they turned out great. But in Mississippi, you'd have to grow out in the woods and you're constantly battling either like, you know, hunt, like people hunting is probably like the biggest thing, you know, coming across because we were doing, it wasn't that big. But it still stuck out like a green thumb. You're talking like we were doing four or six plants. Not much at all. First of all, you had to hike the water in. So there was no doing but just what you could hike in. Right. And it was hot as shit. So you were watering every day. So we successfully pulled off after we, we grew a few seasons. And every season we lost most everything to either deer, pigs, or people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the gorilla life sounds rough. Yeah, but I mean, it was all just, you know, it was just so much. It wasn't even expected to probably even. We, we were just doing it for the fun. And for sure. Just to watch it grow. And don't get me wrong, we wanted to harvest it, smoke it. But we still even would try again, even after we got walked. So, you know. Yeah, it was like the adventure. <laughs> yeah, part of it was the adventure. Yeah, man. But do you feel like that's where the inspiration was born to try to pursue cannabis more? Absolutely. When I graduated high school, was working for my pops, and uh, I had cousins that lived out in California. One of them was super into herb. He, you know, was like, soon as y'all can, you're always welcome to come out and I'll show you guys the ropes. And, you know, as soon as I was able to, I took him up on it. And I've been in California or close by ever since. 
Yeah, well, almost half your life now. A little, little less than half, yeah, but basically half. Time flies. Man, you ain't lying. <laughs> yeah, it does. So one of the things that happened in Mississippi that I feel like was interesting before you left was, again, going back to high times. You know, high times now is seen maybe a certain way, but back then, like you said, it was really one of the very few sources for anyone in like a place like Mississippi to be able to see anything about weed. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of kids can relate. I mean, at the time, no one knew enough about anything to hate on anything. Weed (laughs) Weed was a very unifying thing at the time. And um, yeah, being in Mississippi, of course, we looked at high times and would dream about being able to grow with that type of uh, openness or somewhat freedom. Obviously, it was still just way more freedom than what we had. Right. <laughs> and just access to like that type of smoke, you know? You referenced the article they put out about BHO and you kind of exploring that. But back then, they had put out an article about sifting of some type. And your brother and yourself kind of got interested in that yeah i can't remember i want to say it was high times it could have been someone we met on tour touring around you know somebody gave us knowledge that you could take a silk screen from a shirt printing shop and right you know the not the knowledge was limited to that there was no lpis you know it was just you ran it you know, soft over the top of a silk screen and you could get some some resin to fall off. We tried that on a little bit of the, one of the crops that we, plants that we pulled successfully. And I remember it working. I mean, you know, it was sticky enough to press together, make a little hash. But I think even more curious, it's like you, I always ask people, when did they understand like that the trichome really was the important part, let's say. Yeah, no, th- then I did understand that because we kept sifting it, right? You, I, we didn't know. And then, so after like a good pass and then the next sifting was still kind of looked okay, but you could tell, and then it started turning green. So yeah, we started putting two and two together. I think I had a decent understanding of that just from doing that. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty simple and straightforward, but I think it did give you a reference kind of moving forward. Yeah, yeah. And silk screening or uh, sifting is just like, that's another thing. Crazy how pure those guys can get. I never was, I never tried to, but I never could achieve really good purity. Like 99% pure sift and stuff. Always thought that was cool (laughs) when people could do that or people that took the time to do that. Definitely a art and passion to it yeah i mean just from the people that i've spoken to it seems to definitely be what do they call it labor of love that labor of love for sure yeah well cool man you think this is a good time for a smoke break let's do it all right let's do it I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to everyone who makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 48 with Kobe of Full Flavor Extracts and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Rezon Reserve, Solventless AF and Terp Wizard in Michigan, Nate in Arizona, Nate the Intern, 
Deepeshi44 in Connecticut, Garland in DC, Kevin of Lifted in Dina, the homie Big C, the Chile Relleno Burrito, Macro Melts in SoCal, the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, Meltwalkie J, David of Rosin Evolution, and the homie The Real Cannabis Chris. We appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. So let's talk about the idea of KISS, keeping it simple. You said that you have always grown in soil kind of as a byproduct from learning Mm -hmm. from your cousin and your brother, but still you believe in that. Why? Probably because it is the simplicity of it. And you know, when you get, if if you're learning something and you're being taught, like back when I was coming up, it was kind of like you had almost like you, you were the apprentice. There wasn't a lot of questioning because there wasn't a lot of info. Uh, and if you were fortunate enough to have someone that was going to teach you, then you were just soaking that up. And that's what I did. And that's mostly. I'm sure that if I would have happened to run into someone that was growing rock wool or, you know, whatever, the other cocoa, whatever, I would have done the same and absorbed into that life who knows right i think a lot of this to do with that i've smoked and with that said i still probably if at the end of the day prefer soil just because you know but i've also had some excellent examples in flour and hash that were grown in uh, other mediums so are you a more believer that the cultivator and obviously the genetics are more important than the medium um that's a tough one man yeah, I mean, I think really good genetics and someone that really, because at the end of the day, you can have bad soil grown herb too. That's, I guess, what I'm getting at. You can totally have, it's not a definitive thing one way or the other. People like to make it like that, but that's just people, you know, having their preferences and wanting to promote them. But really and truly, I think that someone that really loves what they're doing is going to show in their product and the genetics are going to shine through. You mentioned that some of your favorite herb in the central Cali area while you were down there was hydro growing. Well, um, there was a couple of strains going around down there and I'm pretty sure they were being grown hydro at the time. That's what I was told. There was some uh, Hindu Kush that was just like so narcotic just really good old school smoke that I would buy ounces of. Durban Poison was another one. The Hindu and the Durban. I know some old heads that remember that down around in that area. We would buy those whenever we were running short before harvest or whatever. And I was always told they're hydro. Who knows? Who knows really, you know? Back then especially, wasn't like you. Yeah, I think you said something to me the other day where like, you know, it was underground for a reason. People didn't want to be found. Yeah, man. Yeah. People didn't even like getting seen at the Hydra store, you know? The right. Shop. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about how your game developed under your cousin and your brother, because you said something funny to me last time. You're like, they basically spoon fed me. Yeah, man. I did. I got lucky. They, he, My cousin, my brother was already out here helping my cousin out. And my cousin just was already dialed in, man. You know, he just already was growing really good indoor herb and clean, good indoor herb. And, you know, showed me how to build the room, gave me the genetics, 
I could literally just call him every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there was never one like doubt in my mind that it wasn't going to work out the way that it was going to work out. What were some of the stuff that you were running back then? We were running very first harvest. I ran two different phenos of Romulan. There was one that we called the original Romulan. And then there was one that was the seven or nine that they were sell. That was the name of the selection from the seed company. It was, I believe, Federation Seed Company at the time. They sold two different seeds, the original and the seven of the nine. The original was a little more like a hashy, for lack of a better word, like uh, had a slight grapey vibe to it. But the seven or nine really took on a lot more of that grape candy components. And I always liked it. It was a smaller yielder. So we do some of both. People like both. Did a lot of the Romulan. At the time, we were also getting Super Silver Haze, M39, which was like a citrusy orange. One of the first like kind of orange candy ones that I remember. There was the blue dot, red dot. Oh, man. I told you I remember the blue dot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But me personally, I preferred, I I grew a lot of the Romulan and the Super Silver. Yeah, you told me that They both made hash, so maybe that's why I liked them. (laughs) I was about to say that, you know, you told me that the Romulan was really important to you in your cultivating career in general, but then it kind of started where you started making more hash off it. And like you just said, it made good hash. It did. It made good melty, you know, just greasy, melty hash, you know. It's just one of them ones. The seven and nine in particular did. Um, but they both both would make hash. Super silver as well would do okay. But I just like those plants for all they were just really, you know, being a beginner, they were also forgiving plants, you know. They grew well. And uh like to smoke the flower of them too. They were heavy, you know. I like the more narcotic flowers. The super silver was a little different but it had not a super racy high. It was like still a nice smooth high. But the Romulan was just like, I love the smoke, you know, it's just mellow me out. Appetite inducing, sleep inducing, got you really high. That's what I loved about it the most probably. And I mean, I think it says something that it was able to stick around. Oh yeah, 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 man, for sure. I think some good seven and nine Romulan, that Fino right now, if you watched it, would be still good in this market, you know. I haven't seen a real Romulan around, though. You know, I'm sure it's out there somewhere. What year do you think you stopped growing that? I'd say right when Sal, well, yeah, probably right around. We didn't grow any of, we grew a little Romulan the first out year outs in 2007. And I believe, if I remember, it was too big and dense. It, we pulled it off, but it wasn't ideal, full sun. That was the days of the big plants, you know? And then 2008, I believe, was the beginning of the sour craze. That definitely switched us over. And OG sours, gas, the gas craze. So tell us a little bit about the gas craze, and how you remember it. <laughs> That's exactly how I remember it, you know? It's just like all of a sudden everybody wanted sours and OGs. Sours grew awesome outdoors. I, I still to this day just love the love good sour smoke. 
but the plants were nice. You know, they could they could handle a little weather. They weren't super by nature. They weren't super dense. You know, we pushed some crops well, like you know, to the end of October, and still pulled down beautiful, fully finished herb. A lot of good things I could say about that sour back then. We grew a few different ones too. I mean, a few different collected from different people. You know. Right. Even grew out some seeds and stuff, and I liked it all. It was all the, all the sour was something I was always pushing for. Again, probably because it did real good too. Like at the end of the year in hash, we'd make tons of hash off of off of a ninety nine plot, just off the trim and littles. You know, fifty sixty plus pounds of pretty good quality hash. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. So you had seed melty hash by that point. For example, in the Romulan, did the sour kind of take that to a next level? Yeah, I think I like the, well, I wouldn't necessarily say so, to be honest. I mean, the Romulan back then was like little small batch indoors. Okay. And being super taken care of, super, you know, washed like for a day, you know, versus like, the sour hash at the time in 2008, 9, 10, still pre really anyone washing for like, obviously before dabbing or anything like that. People were washing at the time for good hash for sure. Lots were. But at the, at the same time, it's like there was still limited knowledge, you know, and just the amount too. I mean, I felt like it was all pretty similar. It was getting sieved and you know, dried as well as possible. I think a lot of the times the resins we were working with were helping out a lot with whether it was getting dried well or not. You know? Right. Yeah, that's fortunate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and don't get me wrong, we knew enough to not, not like there was mold being, but by right. today's standards of dry hash, I so, think most people that were making hash back then would say the same <laughs> yeah you mentioned it earlier like drying I think was a big kind of missing link and you know you and I have talked about the fact that it's kind of an interesting thing to look at hash and say well you know hash has been around for a long time it's just in North America it really wasn't something that like we were knowledgeable about it was more of like this exotic thing and then it started becoming a domestic thing. There was some domestic production. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you know, washing and bags and it gets interesting. And now like there's this almost like resurgence of it or more knowledge of it being spread throughout North America and the rest of the world too. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I really want to go over to Spain eventually I, I mean, this seems like a pretty amazing scene over there. And lots of places, yeah, a lot of places that were probably smoking hash, wet, like you said, way before we were. Yeah, it's already embedded deep into the culture. You know, it's cool to see. I was actually taught, trying to talk my family into going on a vacation over there, checking it out. That's where my grandma's from originally. It's from Spain. And so... Yeah. Yeah, that would be cool, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So at what point do you feel like you stepped up the drying game? I'd say 
a combination of a couple things, but I'd say around 2010 or 2011, people were spreading, you know, ditching. They were using parchment paper to spread onto. Humidity, knew to keep it low. Spread the hash as thin as possible. Cool temperatures. I don't think people were rocking like Colbot 30s, right? right? But people knew that you should be in nice, cool spots. A lot of people make hash in the winter and shit like that. People already knew that. I'd say those were probably the most significant things, like upgrades, like parchment paper on drying pans or baking sheets or whatever. And then, you know, the microplane got popularized. That was a whole nother thing, kind of the, there's always been the seed, the, you had the seed guys and the microplane guys, you know. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think they both are cool in their own, in their own right, if done properly. I think you could mess both of them up, for sure. <laughs> and yeah, man, I think those are really like the most significant things, you know, uh, which are pretty simple, but at the end of the day, stack up to make a lot nicer product for sure yeah so what were you seeing in the hash like once the drawing game kind of improved was there more, more quality more yeah the stability of the hash is what people started really realizing right like the moisture would lead to the hash caking out and you lose a lot of the experience the smoking experience once that happened and people started really realizing that, you know, trap moisture was a big piece of that. Not all of it. Terpenes are playing a part too, and some are more volatile than others and break down the hash quicker. But moisture is getting after it for sure, you know? And I think that was a big piece, like as a as the community as collectively as a community, just like people really trying to dial that in. Pre freeze dryers. <laughs> What do you feel like the freeze dryer has done for the hash game? Made it more popular, for sure. I mean, I don't feel like it would be the popularity of rosin and hash would be where without it. Just by nature of like air drying hash is just limits you on the amount you can make. It only is going to go so far. And freeze dryer, yeah, I mean, if you've ever made it, if you ever air dried hash, and then all the little things that it takes to do it right, the freeze dryer's just like, yeah, it's just on a different level of ease. You could teach someone how to use the freeze dryer in half a day properly, not even. And you're going to have a tough time doing that with air drying. Probably impossible. Yeah, because I feel like I guess the other one is more of like a in crafted thing that everybody's going to have their own almost like approach to it that's for sure that's for sure i mean the the premise the ideas are there in bay but with air drying that was a true artesian thing in the sense of like all the little yeah how everyone would do their thing it was always everyone would always have a little something different they were doing when you talk to them you know or if you stop by and get to make hash with them or whatever so although the freeze dryer has brought a lot more accessibility, let's call it in general, mm -hmm. do you kind of miss the looks 
of the air dries or like those subtleties between makers? I bought some air dried hash just last yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. The look of it is nostalgic. It's probably a lot of nostalgia, you know. But then again, you know, talking to people like Adam, who's who've done both a good bit of both, there are certain profiles that seem to shine better in a freeze dryer versus air dried. Yeah, I think that I've smoked some really amazing hashes done both ways, you know. But as far as like just eye, just visual pill, man, I love it. And that goes I, for microplaning, the way that microplaning looks is unique. I love that look when it's powdered and when it's greased down, as well as like the beautiful little caviar eggs that a nice sieve makes. I love them both. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I I like, I appreciate that as well, I guess. Yeah. So obviously rosin is pretty big now, but you were obviously doing the hash way before that. How do you feel rosin has impacted the scene? Rosin made, I mean, what it did was before you were, you only, if you did a wash, if you were lucky enough to pull hash that you wanted to smoke from it, right? It's from the first, maybe second pull. And it's from maybe only a select bag or two, right? So the rest of the product after that at the time was really a unique thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. There was places it could go, but it was, it was tough, right? Because you only had this small percentage of sellable product. Rosin changed. I think that's the number one thing that rosin did over anything. Obviously, it's a different thing. It's an oil. It's easier to dab. It's easier to store, all these things. But what it did mostly was free that kind of problem there up some. That was a problem for the farmer and the hash maker and actually making it viable, right? And, and make it make sense. You told me earlier there's things you like about hash and there's things that you like about rosin. What are some of the things that you do like about rosin? For hash to be good, after it gets out of the hash maker's hands, it depends a lot on the person distributing it and or the people, multiple people or one, and two, all the way, the last person that's going to smoke it. You can take a good product, a great product, and change it quickly into something not very desirable. With rosin, it's obviously not near that type of care needed, although it is appreciated, the same care. It's not needed to keep a pleasurable experience. And for the average public, that's a big piece. I think the ease of cleanup on the nail and the temperatures that you have to be worried about, that there's a, for the average public, that's not hash nerding out, it's a little easier. And even there's plenty of hash makers and plenty of people that are, they could choose between the two all day and they prefer rosin. So there's also some type of personal preference in there as well. For sure. I agree with that. And I mean, you know, since we talked about the Eagle Clash at the beginning, yesterday 
I happened to be on the rosin side. You were on the melt side. Mm-hmm. And the rosin side had considerably more entries. And they ended quicker, considerably quicker than the melt side. Way quicker. Yeah. Yeah, way quicker. I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Melt does take a little more to prep out. I'll say that. You got to pull it out the jar, press it in the parchment, flag it out, look at it, observe it. The rosin's a lot quicker visually. Boom, looks good. It's got a nice texture. Boom, my dab's ready. You know, that's what I think a big piece of it. The cleanup too, I feel like. Clean up too. I didn't even think about that part. Clean up too. So two things right there that are making it go a lot slower. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So like you said, you know, for ease of use, for the general public. And this is coming from a hash head the, for me personally. And this could change individual. Obviously, that preference is so one of the beautiful things about food and weed and drinks and everything. But for me, I've noticed that even being a hash head, certain varieties, when they get pressed, come alive more than the hash, right? Versus some go the other way, right? I prefer the hash. It, I feel like it, it takes away. But some, I can honestly say, I feel like as far as flavor profile goes, it's better. So there's that too with rosin. Yeah, I mean, let's take, for example, you brought over a strawberry watermelon OG, which is fantastic, by the grown, way. Grown by Only Grow Organic, um, some partners of mine for a long time now. Yeah, some sure. of the first people freezing big freezers for me back way before it was the fun thing to do, cool thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to them because this is phenomenal. Yeah. And you told me that you like the rosin. It translates well. It does. It does. We. It's one of those plants that's a little finicky. The harvest times are real narrow on making good hash. And it varies on the hash being just how we want it to be. Right. But, you know, the rosin, people have always loved it. We love it. Yeah, that one would be one that would be tough to, to choose for me. Between, I like them both for different reasons, you know. That's a good problem to have. Yeah, yeah, that's a good problem to have. But, you know, and some things just don't, by nature, make the most clean. You could be grown as well as possible and hashed perfectly, and, you know, it's just not going to be a six-star or a 5.5. Just not going to be that. So that's another. Is that just genetic-based? I think it is. Yeah. Has to be. Because if it's been... If it's one that's been grown around the state, right, and multiple growers, different environments, and it's kind of collectively known that it's like that, it's probably genetic is what I always figure. Yeah, and we were having an interesting conversation during our smoke break, uh, semi-philosophical, about how a lot of these varieties that seem to be popular, at least for hashing in this sense, are the friendliest, easiest plants to grow. Yeah, it's almost universal. I mean, even when we selected, did a huge seed hunt for hash and our report back to the farmer on the ones that did the best, they were generally the ones that they liked to grow the least. (laughs) So I'm sure there's exceptions to that rule. 
But man, it does seem to be like that a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, man. Well, cool, man. You down for another swim break? Let's get it. Let's do it. Shout out to our homies and partners, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. We're always super thankful of their support on all our projects, including the podcasts, but now also our live events like Coffee and Donuts and The Smoking Jacket. And again, with their support, we're hoping to expand into video work this year, starting with a travel version of Coffee and Donuts while we're out in Barcelona. So a big shout out to Rosin Evolution for always allowing us to do our thing. We've had a great relationship for years now. They're stand-up people. They have a stand-up company. So if you wash hash or you press rosin, use the most trusted bags around with the best customer service in the game at rosinevolution.com. Again, on Instagram, at rosinevolution100 and use our savings code, the letters THI710. Again, THI710 saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com and supports the podcast. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So let's talk a little bit about the banana OG. You said that was one of the big kind of influential varieties yeah. to come into your life. Yeah. How so? Well, I remember that at the time, I think it was 2011, like I was saying, my good friend, Resin Extracts, was telling me about this banana OG. I think he had washed the trim of it, maybe, and it did really well. Anyway, he brought by a nice pound, fresh, super fresh, like probably like five, six days uh, dried. And we washed it, and it just made... Just one of the first ones I remember was just smelling exactly like what it was named and just super bright, pretty resin, you know, beautiful resin and yielded really, really well too, you know, like all, a lot in the 90 and just, yeah, that pound was grown in Santa Cruz by a little small batch grower that in a crazy ironic twist down the line years down the line i would end up renting a spot from this guy's mom in <laughs> santa cruz and i would meet him which is so crazy he's was where their banana og came from that we still have to cut up to this day through my home uh, buddy resin extracts yeah that's pretty cool. And that's the Oregon Kid Cut? I believe so. I believe so. It, it, it was the Oregon Kid Cut. I didn't, at the time, I didn't know much about that. I came to know that he was responsible for that a good while down the road. I didn't, and credit to him, I feel like he probably doesn't get the credit deserved. But I will say probably partially because it wasn't known either. So, But yeah, major props to him. That's a special plant. <laughs> special plant uh, still love it to this day pretty much the same as I did back then so similar to the Romulan you ran this for quite a while and partners me and partners you know yeah for some years still to this day it's still being grown and then I handed out a cut to my good buddies Vince and Michael with symbiotic genetics back when they first started their seed company. And that's the same banana and a lot of their crosses 
that people love so much, you know. Yeah, it's just got some cool history to it, that cut. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you actually gifted me some Amarillo today, which is, I'm pretty sure that's a symbiotic. It is, it is. Genetic. Yep. Does that at all come from that banana OG? Is the, the Amarillo is banana punch number nine crossed with, I believe, their mimosa. I believe. That's it. <laughs> no. Is it the lemonade crossed with lemonade crossed with banana punch number nine? That's it. Yeah. The banana punch has the banana OG in it. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Look, we talked about earlier, you know, the banana terps won last night and they won at Legends too. And amongst crazy other terps, <laughs> like crazy, you know, so many good examples of ego. I wasn't at Legends, but I'm sure I'm sure it was the same way. What is it about the banana terp or that specific one that you like so much? I I like the just way that it was true to the flavor when it was done really well. The flavor transfer, the smell to flavor transfer was like awesome. <laughs> you know, it really would coat your palate with that kind of candy banana. The best examples, I would almost get like a creamery, like a, a banana ice creamery thing going on. Like you walked into an awesome uh, ice cream shop and like, you know, with some banana candy in there or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's hard not to like, unless you just don't like bananas. I feel like there are some people that don't, but so many people do. So do you feel like when you started making hash and pulling bags, it furthers started informing you about the trichome and then actually seeing the ranges of size of trichomes, did that make you a better cultivator? Yeah, I mean, you could definitely tell a lot about the grow, just if it's going to be good or not. Obviously, if you've grown a lot, you know your, your harvest, if it's going well or not. Everything's how you like it, not to par. But... A really cool way to tell if your trichome maturity and just is washing your flowers and say, given that it's a hash plant, right? I mean, some things obviously aren't going to wash, but yeah, I've washed, had harvests that I've washed and been bummed there wasn't any 120 or like, you know, not even some stuff like, where's my little scoop of 150 at? You know, <laughs> it's gone. Like, what the fuck? So, yeah, it definitely teaches you some things that you probably couldn't see just by looking at the flower or smoking the flower. Different, I guess. Some Was one of things. those things for you, like when you were pulling your plants? Yeah, definitely that. Pulling the plants at the right time, not letting them go too long was one is one of the things for sure. But I'd say also just if it's indoors, I would say just really being on top of like watering you know there's not there's less room for air i feel like in the in the larger aspects so to speak small areas that little small stressors you know we've talked about that that that's but you know if you really have significant problems where you have big heat spikes or um, any type of issues you can't spray right so there's no fix i mean you in the very most people that grow for hash don't like spraying in flower at all, but possibly you get away with it, say the first week, right? Or something. But so 
you have to have that part of your game perfect too. You right. Know? There's just a lot of things that make you tighten up if you're growing for hash. And obviously, your bud's the same way too. But I'm saying there's there's more you can get away with when it comes to to that. Uh, and obviously, with hash, I feel like like we've talked about there's you know, so many little small things between growers and where it's being grown and all those things that are going to matter add up over time as well. Right. Going back to what we talked about a little earlier and tying it into this, do you feel like one of the things that tightened up was your soil game? Because I think now you're doing living soil. I've done some living soil, did some indoor living soil beds, and experimented with that. And that's awesome. Was really fun getting to learn about that. But at the end of the day, I ended up having to move out of that spot. And with living soil is awesome when you can have a place that you can, that you know you're going to be for a while. Not that you can't move it. And so, but when you're doing any type of project bigger than what you could load up in a truck or whatever, it's taught hard, right? Like you're not going to be hauling around giant beds and stuff. And it's a lot of time invested into it and keeping it proper. And um, so over the past few years, I've been doing a lot of just, just good super soils and recycling soil, but I love them both. You know, I love, I love doing the living soil, something, something about it. that's just nice. Do you feel like it adds anything to the resin? I do. I think that probably the best hashes that I've smoked have come from really good living soil in special little greenhouses and backyards. And But I've also smoked some incredible resins that probably could compete pretty close that you would have a tough time telling the difference done in recycled soils done right as well. So... What about the light source? Since you've seen so much resin over the years, indoor and outdoor, can you say that you have a preference for one or are there qualities about one or the other that you can tell us about? I think my favorite resins have come from, from the sun. I've had some amazing indoor resins too over the years, but I think if you just had to call it one way or the other, I'd say the sun, the sun wins on that. I think most people would agree. There's some great indoor, I, I mean, amazing, but uh, that's that's what my personal experience has been, you know? And I've released plenty and grown plenty of indoor hash myself. And most of the outdoor and greenhouse resins I'm talking about aren't even my own. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know what we were talking about earlier, but you said you felt that outdoor resin might not be like as clean per se as indoor resin, but still you believe that it's the highest quality resin. And I even think that that's going to be farm to farm too, you know? It has so many little factors involved in why there might be a little more specs. That's what it ends up being. And when we say clean, that's what it ends up being at the end of the day is there's some little speckles in the hash, some little peppers or not, you know. <laughs> that's what it's boiling down to, right? And indoors, you can still get it too. 
For sure. I've watched just this year from a particular farmer that has, there's almost no bare spots on his plot. You know, it's all like grasses growing in between, you know, and there's very little, I mean, his full sun resin comes out as clean as any indoor. I mean, it's so clean when it comes to the speckles, you know, like virtually not there. And I've watched indoor that's had speckles. So I don't know if that's a definitive thing, but obviously when you see it just, it's easier to keep the indoor cleaner. Right. (laughs) Yeah. There's more examples of that. I would guess I would say, but I've seen some amazingly clean outdoor and greenhouse as well. And I think like we talked about earlier, I'm sure it probably also comes down to like the weather conditions that year. Was it windy? Was it dusty? Was it, and also like you're saying, the practices of the cultivator, like having kind of cover crops. It could even be like the property next to them, you know, or down the way a ways. And like you're saying, the wind, uh, so many things. Right. So many things. But uh, I will also say that there's a certain level probably to the amount of specs that I would prefer visually and probably what they would affect. Some of the best hashes I've smoked have had a speck or two. I don't think that's some definitive make or break (laughs) on great hash. So you started making hash around 2004, 2005, but you said you kind of didn't really take it seriously until about 2011. Why was that? Well... I guess I just felt like that it was going to be, it was going to make a pot. It was going to become pot. It was becoming popular in our little world right then. And I felt like it was going to become more popular. And I, and I just loved that chasing at the time. It was like the best full melts, you know, I'm trying to, cause it was not easy to do. You had to put up money and take losses and there really wasn't really many collabs unless you were, Growing it yourself, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, collabing with yourself. Yeah, it was a time where weed was so valuable. It was just a risk, and but it, that was what made it fun. That's what made it awesome. And still to this day, it's the same thing. There's more ones you know that'll work, but people are still chasing them all the time and taking those same L's, and it's still what makes it cool. Yeah, it always sounds like part of the fun for people is that hunt. Yeah, it is. I don't know why. We always want the next best or the next new turp, you know, new flavor. It's, I don't know why it is, but it seems to be that chase, you know, it probably won't ever stop. (laughs) Yeah. And I think now it's even more prominent. Before there wasn't as many choices. Now you got people just so many people just breeding for hash. That too, that's, which is only relatively pretty new here, at least in modern genetics. I mean, like right. we were talking about in old world producing countries, of course they've been breeding for hash for a long fucking time. Right. But here, modern day, the way we smoke and so picky, it's kind of a new thing. So that'd be cool to see where that goes to as well, I think. So speaking of new things, Around 2012, I think, is when Instagram comes around. And you felt like that really started changing everything, really, to a certain degree. But, you know, the idea of branding, the idea of having labels and jars. And 
how influential was that to you? It was super influential. It was like, well, just the label and, and or just the branding in general at the time, I thought was cool just because when you would buy hash in general before that, there was, uh, you, unless it came from your friend or something, there was really no attachment to who it was. It was like you were actually getting to see, you know, kind of who was behind making right. the hash. I thought that was really cool. And I thought the connectivity of social, I was never really on social media at all. I never had personal, that wasn't my style. I never had Facebooks and none of that, right? I think I had one and just sat there. Like I just wasn't, that wasn't my thing. So Instagram and full flow, that hash was the first thing for me on social media. And so I was instantly fascinated by them, by the connections you could make that you wouldn't have made pre that like you maybe at a festival because high times were just starting up too right around the same they almost correlated together a little bit you know all social media is like a love-hate relationship for everyone but there's no one that can deny that social media played a piece of uh, a big piece of the story of hash becoming popular (laughs) at least here in this modern day thing like we say that we know yeah, I agree. I told you, Simply Adam was like, oh, Full Flavor is like one of the original Instagram <laughs> hash guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was not many out there, man. Banff Extractions gave me my first little shout out on Instagram. He was winning High Times Cups back then for his seed tash. How important were things like that for your brand moving forward? Well, back then... You know, people were mostly just selling hash at high times. So you were going to, uh, I don't know how important it was necessarily. Like, it was important for, I think at that time, more for connecting, you know? The brand thing was probably somewhat important for as well. But back then, people were getting still a lot of, Because of Prop 215, you know, you could go set up, you could put your nice booth up, and you could get a whole bunch of people exposure like that, you know, Right. as well. I think it was, yeah, for me, it was just about, like, connect. Like, I was able to connect with hash makers and get on tech, you know, and share that and connect with a couple of farmers that had the balls to fucking free shit and see what was up all the way back then that I probably wouldn't have met either, you know? Right. So. Yeah, like you mentioned, the farmer who grew the strawberry watermelon. Yeah, well, yeah, we we met through another partner. So that was pre really anything to do with that. But lots of other relationships and just general dispensaries, just lots of things like that. So how did that develop for you in the Prop 215 days as a brand? Like, did you start getting into dispensaries? Yeah, I'd say the first place, the first uh, city that really started buying significant drops of, and this was like in the half gram days of Mel. (laughs) LA took a lot of good Mel back then. San Jose started up right after. But really, a lot of the first drops would go down to LA. Weed Studio took a lot of Mel. Buds and Roses. Like those old school spots. 
people for whatever reason were willing to they saw the the value in the hash down there not that it wasn't up here too and quickly did become where you could make drops in san jose and San, but I remember specifically a lot of people going to LA in the, right. in the first hash drops. You know, yeah, yeah. That's interesting that people would find value to it in a specific place yeah, at first. You know, yeah. I don't know. I mean, still, LA is just. I mean, it's one. Of, it's just probably the size of the. You know, that's true. Just the size and the population at the end of the day. What I always figured it was. How have you seen that? Almost like transform in consumers over time where like it was like a small little pocket and now it's not well the consumers are a little different you know because in the prop to 15 days you know obviously the the drops were more kind of like i guess you were on a shelf you know i mean like that's kind of how it was you know versus now you know it's way different with the traditional market versus the white market and these things, right? So, yeah, it's a different scenario. It's a whole different thing. Do you miss that time? Everyone misses that time. Anyone that lived through that time misses that time. I'm still fortunate. I'm very blessed to be in a good position still. But, man, Prop 215 was a really cool time and place. Everyone is a special time special time and although it's been a while like you said your brand is still pretty well known and i was just commenting on your stickers and your updated looks and you told me that you think that it's important to do that like in anything else to kind of keep yourself updated yeah i'm old school and somewhat hard-headed in the sense of like I think simplicity is a great thing, but um, also understand that people are very visually, they, you know, we're a visual creature. <laughs> we re respond to it, you know? And so labels are something that people love to. I think it's really cool when people keep simple labels and are able to st uh, still do their thing. That's really dope because it just speaks what's in the jar. But at the end of the day, I still think mine are kind of simple compared to a lot because I don't do necessarily individual flavors. Sometimes OGO and I have a collab done where they have artwork done up for the selections. But when I collab with people, I just have my basic logo. It's not every flavor having so i don't even think i do near as much and that's a lot to keep up with when you start talking about all that so respect to the guys that can do that i think it's pretty cool but i like both i like the idea of both. i like the simplicity i also like the full jar wraps that are done cool with lots of cool art i like it both i like them both i think they both are cool yeah no i think it's cool that you keep kind of like it's your same Look and logo. Yeah, I try to keep it similar, you know, but just give up. And it's shout out to Scraven, the artist, you know. He was one of the first guys back in the day doing uh, weed logos for people, you know, hash and weed brand logos for people. It's cool to kind of do a little 10-year update on it. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. and it's so funny how... You know, now there's so much stuff out there. It's Weed has gone mainstream. Yeah. 
All right, cool, man. This would be a good time for a smoke break. You done? Sounds good. All right, thanks. I want to take another opportunity to welcome our newest sponsors, including Toro Glass, a legacy glass brand that continues being on the forefront of dabbing innovation. You can visit them at toroglassgallery.com for all your high-end glass and quartz needs. Also, a warm welcome to Hashhead Outfitters, where they specialize in small batch luxury loungewear for the hash community. You can grab their debut hasher design at hashheadoutfitters.com or their Instagram at hashheadoutfitters. And finally, a shout out to Zach Brown Glass, making my favorite carb cap, which you can find on Instagram at Zach Brown Glass. Every cap is rigorously tested for perfect function, all in hopes of maximizing each of your dabs. So visit him at zachbrownglass.com. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So it's come up in our conversation multiple times. Let's talk about Fresh Frozen. When did that start becoming a thing? Man, that's a good question on when Fresh Frozen was first a thing. I guess I would say, for me, sometime around 2012, maybe? I want to say. Were you freezing your own material at that time? Yeah, and just like my own stuff and then... There was like a couple like partnership farms that I like could freeze a little bit out of, you know. So they even though it was mostly being harvested for flour, like it still could freeze a little bit. So they would buy in enough that they would believe in the fresh frozen to do it? Or just I could just take some of my share <laughs> and freeze it. Yeah, my flowers mostly. I did have some collabs that were with people though back in right around that early time, you know just private farmers that just liked hash already and were willing to play, <laughs> you know, experiments on. But mostly it was like you had to grow your own for the most part. And people that weren't growing it for hash were growing it for them, <laughs> for themselves too. So there wasn't a lot of like fresh frozen really. To, like I said, it'd have to be your buddy or your family or somebody that was caring about your little hash experiment <laughs> yeah. right yeah what was the learning curve like from dry to fresh frozen as a maker with dry material it needs to be soaked longer and just gentle as possible the you know you're gonna get a more contaminated product if you don't really rehydrate it and wash it nice and gently same. I mean, of course, fresh frozen, you need to wash it nice and gently as well. But the soak times are much shorter soak times. Dry materials way easier. I'd say yields are better. And I'd say also there might be certain, certain strains, cultivars that will make hash with a little dry, maybe fresh dried or dried versus it being fresh frozen. Specifically for yield, you're saying? Yeah, yield or maybe even just like, yeah, just making, yeah, enough hash just to even say that it is a, a hash plant at all, right? Uh, or even to call it a hash plant, not ghosting, you know? I feel like there's some that would, if you dry, they have uh, more 
likelihood of making hash. That's rare, though. I don't know that there's that. I just only know of that of a few examples, and I know of a few other hash makers that have mentioned that. But for the most part, it definitely, if you take the same plant, fresh, frozen to dry, I feel like the dry is just going to be easier. When you get really good fresh frozen, it's just a matter of your your parameters are going to have to be stepped up as well. You're going to have to be working in a colder room, basically just making sure you're not ending up with a big grease mess, you know? Right. That's a big difference between the two. Not that you can't have some good, greasy, dry, fresh, dry stuff for sure, but I'd say that's a huge difference in just the tackiness and greasiness, freshness of the resin, pulling the bags, you know? So when you originally started pulling bags, how many were you running from that set that you traded for? Do you remember? I was a full, like, uh, there was a, there was the 25, 45, 73, 120, 160, 190. Don't think there was a 90U back then. I think the 90, it, it might have been. It came soon after. If it, was, if it wasn't, the 90 came right after I want to say that one didn't. My first set didn't have a 90, though. I want to say the, the 70 was the money bag, usually. So yeah. It was some 120, if you're lucky, you know, that was real nice. So that's also when you started to learn, like, what ranges these were falling in, actually. You're like, oh, this bag is actually has a bunch of hash in it. Yeah. For a long time, people thought that the, the smaller the micron, the better the hash. But, I mean, you quickly knew that that wasn't the case. If you make cash, you could tell that that 70 bag was where it was at or the 120. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, even certain big fat-headed varieties with the 150s, the rare 150s occasionally, that all hash makers love. I love, like, a really proper 120 has probably been, like, my favorite melts. Just those bigger heads. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's a little rarer than, for example, a 90. It is, especially to burn right and have all the same attributes. Do you think that partially comes down to genetics? I think genetics and environment. Genetics and environment, for sure. Did the ranges of the hash start changing from when you went from dry to fresh frozen? That's a good question. I don't think that I have a lot of, because as things evolved, I don't know how many examples I like ran side by side, you know? Like when things went to fresh frozen, it was mostly fresh frozen. You know what I mean? Like that jump, that that evolution happened real quick. And it was like, I don't know how many examples I have to really run like that, but I would say, just by the nature of the way the resin acts, I would say there would be a slight difference in size, uh, loss of size when it dries, but maybe not always. Yeah, fair. This is a topic I always like to ask people about since we're on Fresh Frozen. What's your conversion for it? That was a little hard to, it, if you trimmed all the leaf off of it, is once in it because the dry pound versus the frozen pound. If the frozen pound is trimmed exactly like you would trim the dry pound, 
then you can get to a little more definitive conclusion okay. on this, right? Because the, if, if it's got a little touch of leaf, you know, and not nothing crazy, but just a little touch, that's going to be a different, two different things. But I would say, generally speaking, somewhere around 2,200, 2,300 grams. Everyone does 2,000 grams, but everyone knows that that's not probably an exact pound. Most people that I talk to agree and say that. But I don't know how many people have done the test, you know, side like where you're, you know, you dry that and then freeze this and find out exactly what it is. I, I've heard people say 22 to 2350 ish. Yeah. So have have, what, have, what have you heard from? Yeah. In that range. Yeah. In that range. Yeah. You know, it just, yeah. Depending on, on who you talk to, everybody yeah. has a little bit. Yeah. A different of a take. And I think like you're saying right now, that kind of also comes from hearing from peers and informing yourself from others in the community. Yeah. I haven't, you know, experimented side by side like that much with like drying a particular pound and then seeing exactly what it is. And now it's like so set at just like, you know, it's a 2000 gram, it's a kilo. 2,000 gram, whatever it is, you know? Like, that's how it's purchased. So the semantics of what exactly a pound is is almost irrelevant anyway. So at this point, percentage-wise, what do you consider a washer? I'd say you have, for me, 2% and below would be, I would say, it would be bad, you know, no good. Unsustainable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two to like three, three and a half would be like that would be average, and then three and a half, four ish to five would be I'd consider good to very good, and then above five, it would be considered five or above six would be excellent. That's kind of how I'd see it. What does that percentage comprise of for you? And that matters too, like, and that's not talked about a lot, you know, in the day, in the day and age we are in where a 40 micron bag is essentially food grade for most people. Not that there aren't some great forties that end up getting smoked up and put in joints or down, whatever. Right. But for the most part, most forties end up food grade. So that percentage doesn't, that's a different percentage, obviously. And then you could break it down to, you know, if you're pulling for melt, you could have your first wash melt pull percentage, second wash melt pull percentage. You could even nerd out to, you know, you're separating your 90s, your 104, your 120, you know. But I would say if you're talking, it would be the, if I was saying something was 5%, it for me, it would be, a true 5% would be combination of your melt, good sellable or smokable rosin, your best parts of your rosin, equaling up that percentage. Or either if you were washing strictly for rosin, the rosin equaling that percentage, your 70 micron, your 90, your 120, whatever your good selection from that wash would be. So in this scenario, that 45 bag, if for some odd reason they were full, 
would not necessarily count if it's not part of your A grade. Some product. people, some people do count it. I just think for me in the day, it just like where we're at now with the market being the way it is, you can, it's obviously part of the yield, but it's significantly less. I mean, if the 40 made up a big P, you're going to have to adjust those numbers on that. They're going to be completely different. And not generally speaking too, you don't want that 40 bag filled up. That's right. not that's <laughs> right. Like that's a sign that the, there was something a little off on that grow. Yeah, exactly. Ideally, you're not dealing with too much 40. So do you still put out melt and rosin? Yeah. What typically goes into your rosin? Well, I'll separate it by micron. I have some smaller amounts of people that prefer it that way, micron specific, although it's becoming more and more popular because people are being more educated. And But, uh, you know, that also brings in different price points and different things of that nature, right? Which co- complicates things a little bit. Not that plenty aren't doing it and not that I don't like that. I, I like it. Right. Uh, personally but when it comes to sales everyone seems to love the 70 90 and if the 120 is good they seem to like that little range of uh or that spectrum captured in the best washes put together you know that seems to be what most want but not you know again that's not definitely not all that we produce and definitely not all that that people want from me. But generally speaking, I'd say that's the most demand for that particular product. When you do pull milk, what bags are you usually pulling? The 90 and the 120 if it makes if it makes the cut, you know. Those are the bags. Uh, I smoked some good 70 melt, but and I know a lot of people have uh, will attest to that too. I mean, there's some great 70 melts, but generally speaking, most of the people buying melts want the 90 or the 120. Is that usually always coming only from a first wash or a second wash as well? I normally, most of the melts I do are from one wash, but sometimes if the resin's clean enough, we'll run a second wash and keep them and if I can't tell any difference side by side and then smoking them, then we'll, we will combine the first and seconds. But that's, I'd say, less all, that's rare, I would say, you know. I'd say uh, one good eight-minute, six to eight-minute wash, and we pull it and get the melts and then make the rosin after that. If it's for melts, you know, for washing for melts, that's usually what we do. If you're washing for rosin, is any different? It, it depends on, again, what the farmer wants and what for that drop, right? If we are going to keep it micron specific, then obviously that's we'll do that. If we're going to say we have a new something we haven't worked with that comes in, we're going to run every bag on it on the first wash. Even if they want a more like a 70, 90, 120 uh, combined spectrum. We're gonna run all the bags, make sure that 120 is good enough to go in there or anything you know, in that range. And if not, then it's gonna stay as a filtration bag, right? right? If not, then we will make use of it uh, time and pull that bag and collect if that's 
what we know we're going to be doing. Same with the 90. Uh, you, you know, you can pull those bags if you're collecting from those, from that range. Uh, I think where people get a lot goes bad with people is that they start getting lazy and doing that right from the gate and not judging the wash for its individual, you know, each individual wash. Yeah. So you're having to separate it to actually see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can recombine it if you need or yeah. want. A hundred percent. That's exactly how we do it. When it comes to your rosin, are you doing any kind of heat tech or are you sticking to what people call cold cure? Yeah. I don't do any heat tech. I don't have anything against it. I just, it's not what I do. I do mostly cold cures. I have released jars in the past, mostly like to good friends that want a big head stash and I'd give them a fresh press jar, big jar and let them rock it how they want to do it. Cause I, you know, I knew they, they knew how to care for it. Right. Uh, I haven't done a lot of fresh press on drops, but it's something that I actually want to, I, I like fresh press. It doesn't come out the jar the same, but I think that it has its a cool spot to the, you know, just being fresh and, if the customer wants to quote unquote cure it themselves, they can they can do that. It's a cool thing. In the cold cure we offer mostly is what we get most orders for. And I love it too, for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, shelf stability I definitely think is probably one. Yeah, yeah, for fresh presses, you gotta treat it when you're like, um, like melt and treat it like the melts to get the best out of it. Uh, I do feel like it's recently kind of making a little comeback. Yeah, risk. yeah. Oh, it, it's a huge, uh, always has. I feel like there's always been hash makers that have done a good job marketing their fresh press and really just make it, you know, doing it really well. I think pressing fresh press takes a little, you know, to do it right. There's some little things with it. And some people do it just really amazing, you know? It almost looks like distillate in the jar, <laughs> you know? Like, but, you know, just so clean. Yeah, I, I like, I love it all. <laughs> I love it all and respect all, the, you know? At the end of the day, if it's a good, if it's a good product in the jar, if it's fresh pressed, cold cured, or melt, it, it's, I love, it's, going, it's all great. It's gonna get smoked. It's going to get smoked, <laughs> you know. Well, Kobe, I really appreciate you hanging out with me this long, man. I'll start winding it down. I appreciate you, bro. Of course, man. It's been an honor really to hang out with you and, and talk to you, man. So I enjoyed it. Likewise. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that we've come up in our conversation is how we feel both. We're both around the same age. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Almost the exact same age. Yeah. yeah. And we, so, you know, we, we came up around the same time and we both have this feeling of like weed used to be a unifier mm -hmm. and now it seems to like be just another point for a division. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about some of your experiences and how you've seen that change? Well, all my friends that are, at, you know, our age, we joke about it a little bit because it's just something that's, you can't help but to notice it, you know? When you smoke weed back in the day, it was a unifier. Everybody knows this. They grew up back in that time. It was like it would break down 
any th- differences between people and no one cared about that number anymore at all. It was all about finding that herb and smoking it together. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's like whole friendships built for life on that shit that they would have, people would have never probably have gotten along even much less. And then all of a sudden they realized they had way more in common. That's kind of like was how I thought about weed all the way up until, you know, weed started having to get branded and people, it became more difficult, um, more competition. And I guess with that inevitably is going to come what we talk about, you know, about it just being some room, there's division in it now. And that's probably the nature of just things as they get bigger and, you know, more connected. But it is a little disappointing sometimes. Yeah, I told you earlier, I agree with you, man. Like, it used to be cool to, you know, if you knew somebody else smoked, like you just connected with them on that level. Yeah. And now that, like we said earlier, it's, just more mainstream or like more popularized or more common. Well, there was a level of trust back then too that was a little more significant. Yeah. Not that you don't have to have that now, but I'm just saying that the penalties aren't as severe. For sure. And in some places they still are, like Texas. Yes, absolutely. 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 Yeah. So, you know, in some parts of the country, it's still super relevant. Yeah, it is. It is. You still got to choose wisely. Absolutely, man. Yeah. So this is kind of a grand question, but what do you see happening kind of with cannabis moving forward? This year is the most frozen weed I've ever seen by far. I mean, it's cool in a way because I feel like hash makers always knew that it was going to blow up, (laughs) but for it to really blow up on that level where people, I mean, so many frozen freezers just sitting probably even though you know it's kind of mixed feelings you use a mixed feelings thing it's cool in a way to see it come so but at the same time you know a lot of the flowers that people are freezing were because they couldn't move the flower in the first place and most of the great hash that's being smoked the people that were freezing they they were moving their flowers before they started freezing as far as moving forward i mean I don't know where it all go to, man. It's important to try to distinguish your hash or flower in some form or fashion from the next person. And uh, I think it's important, yeah, for people to realize that it is all, it's a tough time for a lot of folks. And, you know, people should be a little more connected and big up in each other a little more than all the drama and bullshit. But they could just be being <laughs> stony too, you know. But I feel like that for sure. You do get to work with some pretty cool people still, though. You've told me like you're really stoked on a lot of the farms you get to work with, a lot of the people that whose hard work you get to showcase, basically. Uh, yeah, it's the best part. I mean, some of the farms I work with. Uh, I've been working with or known the people for like a decade, you know, or longer. So it's, it's really cool. Some of them have started making their own hash, you know, on their own. And this is cool to see. I'm curious if their like genetics have changed as 
they've shifted over to hash, I'm presuming coming from flour. I mean, a lot of the best flour doesn't do that great in hash. Right. You know, like the the way the oils burn on the flour versus the way the heads need to be for hash. But I've also smoked a lot of flour that's amazing that make great hash too, you know? It's not like a 100% correlation, but... How about like the types of varieties that they're growing? In the sense of... Um, in what sense? In, like, uh, in the sense of trying to find plants that do have that quality, that do make hash, versus being able to have it for a flower market. Yeah, well, total just different structures and shit. Good hash plant is usually kind of, not always, but you know, it has to be somewhat loose. Can't be super dense. Uh, and most people won't, you know, not that they won't fucking rock hard, dense flowers, but you know, they won't, the, the flowers gotta have a better structure. So just that alone right there is two opposing things you would be looking for. Right. Outside of resin, like the way it fills or anything or, yeah, that right there is a big piece. What's a variety that you loved at one point that you missed that's no longer around? For hash, I don't, that's a good question, man. I really honestly don't know. I mean, I would like to have some I'd like to have that seven to nine Robin back just to see what it would be like washing it now. And like, but I'm trying to think like what, there's not that many that I feel like that are like extinct or anything. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are, but just off top, I mean, that's a tough one. I mean, what was it? It was the mothership and HP 13 back in like 2007 up on uh, Redwood Valley. Uh, not even fresh frozen, just the littles and the trim from that stuff that made some memorable hash. And I don't know how available those genetics are to this day. Those just popped in my head, you know, but that was old, that was, that was like old school shit. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I'm sure that there were varieties within those that made hash, but if you yeah. weren't making it, you wouldn't know. A hundred percent, hundred percent. But just off top, I mean, yeah, I can't think of too many extinct ones or things that mostly just stuff maybe that that gets forgotten about and then revitalized you know like we were talking earlier yeah the cycles yeah the cycles yeah what were some of the earliest hash brands that you smoked outside of your own well i mentioned Banff. i smoked you know his hash was some of the first nicotine third gen brandon Gosh, don't out so bad, bro. Fuck, I know there's <laughs> no there's other other folks too that I'm stoning out on that I'm spacing, but those those pop in mind. Was it helpful for you to see their work and kind of reference it to your own? D definitely. So some of the pictures Nicotee was posting back in the day were like definitely inspirational, you know. Just the beginning of the fresh frozen days, you're just staring at pics and drooling, even if you were making it yourself, you know? Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. You brought up an interesting point about Instagram and said that you also feel like it brought a sense of accountability to people. 
Yes, makers. What did you mean by that? Well, put branding yourself partly is putting responsibility. I mean, you know, accountability on on yourself. What social media does for anyone in any industry is if someone chooses to be really disappointed in your product, they have the ability to share that disappointment on a large scale. So that with Instagram, it kind of we it checked the community as far as like people selling bunk weed or bunk, not totally and i'm not saying across the boards are still playing but in sm- these smaller circles of people at the top or the the best trying to push the best product it seemed to be have some level of that i know everyone knows what i'm saying too because everyone you know there's been a lot of debacles and <laughs> call outs right some good and some bad some well-deserved i'm sure if you had to name three people who have influenced your hash career the most, who would they be? Well, that's a real good question. I mean, I wouldn't be out here doing what I do or I'd had a really difficult time doing it if it wasn't for my family. So right off top. But yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, realistically, who was like, I mean, it was really a collective group of people bouncing ideas because, I mean, I wasn't, and it, I mean, honestly, like the inspiration, I would say, like to put hash, like out branded, like the way I did, would definitely be just from, like, with, from the people I named, like Bam, Nicotee. There was only a handful of people doing it. But as far as like, it was a time where, I mean, a lot of just trial and error, you know, it wasn't like I could just like, it wasn't like I had like a hash mentor. I had a row mentor, you know, but I can't, it's not like one person or like two people that I could be like, yo, this is like, I mean, I still learn stuff from people to this day that are younger than me. Been doing it for less time, you know, so... Yeah, it's a hard one to fucking answer, man. Final question. If you could hear from someone on the podcast, who would it be from? If I could hear from someone? Like in what? Like, like if I could, if, like somebody that I can interview, like somebody you'd like to hear from. Oh, man, definitely get Razanol. That's the home. Uh, he's... He's a good dude, real good dude, and he 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 would make for a fun interview. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, we'll try to make that happen. Yeah, he'll give you some fun banana OG backstories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, for anybody who stuck around with us this long, we appreciate you listening. Kobe, again, thanks so much for taking the time in. Thank you very much, brother. Of I really course, enjoyed man. it. Likewise. Yeah. Anything else you want to say before we sign off? Yeah, I wanted to earlier. You said uh, I feel like I got to do this one because me and you, you, you brought it to my mind right here when we were talking about Cuban. Wanted to give a shout out to Soul Girl and Solventless when you were talking about Rosin because that was a he really popularized. You know, you can argue about where it came from, whatever. But that guy really popularized and I've never seen something shift so fast in the market in my life. And I felt like 
I need to say that as you know. Cool man, yeah, that's a great shout out because yeah. yeah, that was a that he didn't get he didn't get uh, the the credit he deserves on that. I agree. Well, cool. Thanks, man, and thanks for hanging out with us this long. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.